Hey, it's Barbara Phillips with NPBO, and I wanted to give you a heads up on a webinar that we have coming up Thursday, May 16th, and it will be with a certified healthcare privacy person who has been in charge of a very large healthcare organization and their privacy compliance, HIPAA, and all of that sort of thing. And I think it's very important that all clinicians attend this one because HIPAA affects all of us. And so you can get more information about that at npbusiness.org forward slash privacy matters. And just another quick heads up after that, in June, we'll be talking with someone who has been in charge of the IT compliance to protect the organization. And so this one will be geared toward how do you protect yourself as well as your practice. And I'll be sharing more information about that later. So let's move on with the podcast. This is the NP Business Matters podcast, episode number 14, with Renee Dobring on finding your perfect job. Hello and welcome to the NP Business Matters podcast. I'm your host, Barbara C. Phillips, nurse practitioner and founder of Nurse Practitioner Business Center and the Clinician Business Institute. And you can learn more about both those sites by visiting npbusiness.com and clinicianbusinessinstitute.com. So let me ask you, are you a new nurse practitioner? Are you a seasoned nurse practitioner? Are you trying to find that very first job? or trying to find a better job? Well, if so, you'll definitely want to listen to today's episode. I'm interviewing Renee Daring. Renee is a nurse practitioner, also known as the NP Career Coach. But there's so much more to what Renee does, and we're going to talk about a lot of those different things here today. So Renee has been very active legislatively wise in Minnesota, and they in Minnesota continue to enjoy full practice authority and in no small part to her contributions, as you'll hear. But her background and experience also includes being a career coach for nurse practitioners. I wanted to talk to Renee because I often receive questions from new nurse practitioners who have yet to find that first NP job to other nurse practitioners who are looking for work and looking to make a change, and they're just not getting anywhere. And you might or might not be surprised at some of the things that Renee is telling us, but I certainly was surprised to find out that a lot of these companies now are using AI to scan through your applications and it doesn't see a human's eye until it makes all the different cuts. So we're going to talk a lot about some of the things that you need to do in order to make sure that your resume is um, at least seen by human eyes and just some of the things that you can do to increase your chance of getting the job of your dreams. Now, a little bit of a fun fact that we never mentioned in um, our interview here is that I happen to be one of Renee's 
co-sponsors this past year when she became a fellow in the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And like every place else, we didn't get a chance to have our um, annual uh, conference where we would have had a celebration and and a physical induction. So I'd like to just throw that in there and offer Renee again uh, congratulations. So if you're ready to learn what it takes to get the job that you want, then let's get started. So Renee, one of the questions that I have for you is about um, nurse practitioners looking for jobs. So I get a, a lot of questions and I get people who they're either new grads and they can't find a job, so they're thinking about starting a business, or they're just new grads or, or recent grads who are looking for jobs. So when people have said, I can't find a job anywhere, it's like, hmm. So what, since you work with these folks, what would you say to them when they say somebody calls you up and says, I can't find a job? Where do you start? Well, in the last few months, I've told them don't take it personally, because there has been a lot of shifting around since the pandemic. Um, a lot of clinics have scaled way back. Um, and they're, and they're not necessarily hiring. I, job offers have been clawed back um, just because of the whole restructuring during the pandemic um, where they don't have the volume that they had previously. But I, I think it's really important, and this is sort of coming at it from that business aspect, just as if you were going to be starting a business, you really need to do a bit of a market analysis and take a look around and see what's open And you have to look, of course, in the area where you're looking. Um, It doesn't do you a lot of good to look at, you know, statistics and so on that are, if you're in the middle of the country like I am, that are based on the coasts or things like that. Um, Oftentimes, um, people are, are looking for things that just aren't there right now. And the market was pulling back some before the pandemic. Um, in some areas, um, especially your primary care areas. And I, you know, I have a couple theories as to why that was. I mean, I've seen over the, you know, 15 or so years that I've been doing this shifts that go both ways, where it's boom markets and then very tight markets. And the last time we saw the market tighten up a lot was right before the Affordable Care Act, when it was being talked about. And people or I should say um, clinics, administrators, and so on, just weren't really sure what was going to happen. And so what they did is they just kind of went into a holding pattern. So we saw a lot of temporary jobs increase, um, but we didn't see as many permanent offers going out. And so they just kind of held their breath and they waited until it was done and it was passed and then they knew what they were dealing with. And so then when it passed... The, uh, the the thought was that there's going to be a great need for primary care because of the ACA. And so then they began hiring, you, you know, just uh, like gangbusters. They were, they were just hiring all over the place. 
Um, also, um, there seemed to simultaneously be a discovery that NPs could work in specialties too. And that kind of was something that they hadn't quite figured out before, um, that it's not just, for instance, our competition there was um, PAs. Uh-huh. Um, and they kind of went, oh, you mean an NP can be in neurology or ortho or one of these types of um, practices as well. So that sort of beefed up. And then I think that that continued on for quite a while. And then even prior to the pandemic, when I speak to new graduates every year around February, or they're about to be graduates, I should say. And I speak with a group of them here in the metro area on a regular basis. And one of the things that when we were able to actually meet in person last February, um, but I'll always ask them, how many of you already have a job? Now, it was probably about three or four years ago when I bet you 75% raised their hands and said they already had a job lined up and they weren't graduating till May. The last couple of years, it's gone down and down and down. In fact, last year, I think if even out of a little over 100 attendees, if five to 10 raised their hand, um, that, w- that was it. Um, and so one of the things I think was already sort of in the natural natural evolution of this that had happened is that places beefed up. They got ready for the surge in, in demand. And especially in primary care, people don't tend to leave those positions. And so they had what they needed and they just kind of have hit their capacity. And so we, we saw that slowing up a bit. And so when that happens, they can be pickier. And if you've got seasoned NPs out there looking for the work and new grads, you know, that you got to know your competition for that market space as well. And so um, that that's what sometimes new NPs fail to grasp is that they are competing against those experienced NPs that for whatever reason are making a job change. Um, And so I think that the market was already slowing. Well, then the pandemic came around and clinics started shutting down, only doing essential care and so on. And they were forced to furlough a lot of their folks. Um, The remaining few, they were, they were very um, invested in trying to take care of the employees they had um, setting up telehealth and so on. And so um, that's caused a further drying up in the market. Now, that's not the case everywhere. Um, those services where people can't be delayed, for instance, where people live, like long-term care, correctional facilities, um, I'm trying to think of a couple other, um, well, mental health lent itself to telehealth a long time ago. Um, But some of those places where you can't tell people to just go home, those places are still hiring, still looking for people. But the ones that could um, scale back and put off some non-emergency type care or non-urgent care, um, did start actually furloughing people. In fact, I have, which I've never thought I'd ever hear about this, but I have nurse anesthetist friends that were laid off. Um, and now uh, you wouldn't think that would happen, but when they closed all the same day surgeries. Right. And elective surgeries. Elective uh, surgery, yeah, what they call elective started, you know, was pretty broad for a while. So, you know, you really kind of have to look at, at, 
the market that way. So now with the pandemic on here, you have a number of people who thought, eh, maybe, you know, we're thinking for a while, maybe I should look for a different job. I'm not, I'm not miserable here, but I'm not entirely happy here. Well, those people, you know, once they got cut, their hours cut or furloughed, started to throw their hat in the ring. And so you've got these folks out there, these sort of passive job seekers as well, that if the right thing comes along, they're on it. And then you have recent graduates. And I'm seeing recent graduates sometimes take up to a year to get a position, depending on their flexibility. I mean, if they have the ability to move to somewhere that's hiring, you know, that's a plus, but not everybody does. No, they don't. And certainly some of the things that I hear, and not just during this time of the pandemic, but even mm-hmm. before before then, you know, I've been looking for months, I can't find anything. Everybody wants you to have experience first. Yes, yes. How are these NPs, these brand new NPs supposed to get experience? I mean, how, how, how do you coach them? Well, I, what they need to do is start networking. That That is still, you know, remains the best way to get a position. Um, Also, when they're applying, again, they have to look at the market and they have to look at their competition and they have to to submit an absolutely flawless resume along with a cover letter, perhaps calling and making contact with someone in the organization and... um, they, then they need to also, when they do submit an application, they need to follow up on it. You can't just submit it. I have uh, recruiter friends that are telling me that in some of the larger organizations where you submit them into the computers, those are just going into a black hole, essentially. Um, but if you can reach someone, which is getting harder and harder, you can reach someone, you know, and they're aware your application is out there. They might be able to go and, you know, personally take a look at it. But I think both new graduates and experienced NPs make similar mistakes in their resume. One is thinking that you have to put everything in it. You don't. They, they you know, I, I hate to say this, but as nurses, we're terrible at editing ourselves. Yeah. And they put everything in there. And, and it's not your life story. What you're trying to do, it's a marketing tool. You're trying to show the employer you have the skills they seek. They're not really interested in the skills you have that are not part of the position they posted. And so oftentimes they throw in, you know, just everything under the the sun into a resume. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen online that um, where people would put the, the, the acronym TLDR. Yes. Yeah. Too long. Didn't read. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you have to use that, um, same strategy in terms of your resume. Well, a couple different strategies. Number one, they're telling you that they're looking for specific skills. Those darn well better be in your resume because if it is an automated system, it's looking to match that. Right. It uses AI these days. Yes. And it's looking yep. for those keywords. Yep. Yes. And if it says suturing, you better say suturing. And if it says team-based, team player, you better use the term team player. And, you know, then it's going to find you. 
So, yes. So if, if they're using specific keywords, they're giving you a hint as to what they're looking for. And if, if they say those keywords, you know that's what they're setting their, their AI to look for and to screen out. I mean, they've got so many applicants, you know, when, when um, you know, it's a buyer's market for them, they can be picky. They can be picky. And so um, that's one of the things that you can do if you're, you're putting into the system. But then you always have to realize somebody's going to be looking at it, you know, visually as well. And then you use that old strategy that like the newspapers used with paper newspapers, the above the fold idea that your most important information should be at the top, especially if you picture it, if you, somebody pulls it up on their screen, um, they're not going to see your entire document. They're going to see the top half of it. So you better have your best information first. Um, some of the other things, if you want to throw them on at the end, fine. But they, what recruiters tell me is, I'm not going to read it. You can put these things on there, but I, I'm really not going to read it. That's fine. It's not going to hurt anything. It will if it bumps your important information lower. Uh-huh. It, then it will make a difference. Um, but um, what they tell me, you know, when I talk to the different different recruiters, both staffing agencies and organizational ones is that, you know, they, they just want to see what they're looking for and they want to be able to find it quick. Uh, and that's, that's their primary goal. So oftentimes, like I said, there, there's not enough editing that goes on um, too much irrelevant information. Um, and when people sometimes will go to the internet to seek out how to put together a resume and just to be clear, we are talking about a resume, not a CV. You don't submit a CV. They'll call it a CV. That's fine. Just go with whatever they call it. But just know what you're actually making is a resume. A CV is far more in depth than unless you're applying for an academic position or something. You're not. You're really not creating a CV. So, so Renee, if I'm a, a let's just say I'm a new graduate, mm-hmm. a new grad FMP. Yes. I've not worked as an FNP before. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe my RN experience included critical care um, and maybe some long-term care. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite wide there, but yeah. So, so how would, and, and they're looking for someone to do primary care. How would I perhaps craft that? I mean, are there certain keywords? I mean, I can think of some, but are there keywords that, or or ways that you might suggest somebody take that information, you know, and kind of tailor it? So playing off the idea of providing only pertinent information, as a new graduate, your work experience is your clinicals. And those are going to go above your actual paid work experience because that's what's most relevant to the position you're applying for. And many recruiters tell me this too. They really don't look at the nursing, what you did as an RN. They, They like to see it there, but they don't need all the details of it. Every job duty you had as an RN, they know exactly what RNs do. And that's not exactly what NPs do. Right. Um, so you don't have to 
start putting all these bullet points underneath your RN experience um, to show them that, you know, what you did as an RN, because that doesn't necessarily translate. So what you want to do is take your clinical experiences. And I tell people to just make up a blank sheet, take a blank sheet and start listing every procedure you did, every condition you saw, all the pieces of it, whether it's education, labs, imaging, whatever, just do a big old laundry list under each rotation of the different things you did. Then when you go to put together a resume, yes, you're going to need to make a resume specific to every job you apply for. You that This is the problem with hiring someone to do it is you're going to get one. And, and when it's competitive, that's just not going to cut it. So you're going to go to this big laundry list. So you don't have to do it every time you're going to do a, do a resume. And you're going to choose the ones that are pertinent to the job you're applying for. Um, if you're applying for primary care and you're only going to be seeing adults, you need to put your pediatric rotation on there. You know, that, that's not something that's going to interest them. And so that is your work experience as as a, a new graduate. You really need to emphasize that. That in a well-written cover letter. And then when you get to your RN experience, now if you're applying to a specialty, let's say um, you're applying to, you know, work in an oncology specialty, and that's where you worked as an RN was in the hospital in oncology. That could have some bearing on that. But again, they don't need to know your RN duties. Um, right. Because they're not going to be the same as your clinic duties, for instance. Right. Um, but it shows that you, you know, had, had have some knowledge of this already. And you may want to put some bullet points of the types of, for instance, if it was pulmonology, the types of conditions you dealt with as an RN, that might be okay. Um, but I think as long as they see that you had some RN experience in that specialty, now primary care, I mean, how, how many RNs really have primary care experience? Um, right, right. You don't. Right. And ICU does not impress primary care necessarily because that's that's not really? what it's about. Yeah, you know? no, it's not about what where my thought process was there was just the ability to do decision making. Oh, sure. Sure. And, but they, and, they know that if you're an RN, if you just put RN, you know, cardiac ICU. Right. They, they don't need to know, again, your job duties. Right, right. Know, That's not what I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But they do want to see that you worked as a nurse. That can be a real um, problem when people get into a program and they don't have, you know, maybe even a year's experience as a nurse. Men will continue to work during their program, but, you know, it it does make it a little bit more difficult and you have to really, again, the only way you can provide that other information about your leadership and so on is really effectively to do it with a cover letter. Okay. Okay. So then your resume is going to highlight your skills. Yes. And the, that are job specific. Yes. And your cover letter should look at more global um, abilities. Gives you a chance to expand on, you know, your, cause your resume is going to be more bullet pointed and, mm-hmm. and the, the, the cover letter gives you a chance to kind of expand a little further and explain, especially if you have something you need to explain in your, in your resume, you feel like, 
you know, you just have to have some explanation with it. Um, the other thing that sometimes trips up, and this is both new grads and experienced NPs, is um, failing to put all your certifications and licenses. Now, you don't want to put the numbers on there. Um, there's just too much risk for identity theft. And if they need those, you know, you'll, you'll do that on an application or something, not in your resume. Because those get passed around all over the place. Um, but when you're submitting to a big system that's using AI and it says, you know, must have certification, must have DEA, must have um, our current RN license, it doesn't read between the lines. And I see a lot of people forget to put their RN license on there. And we know if a human is looking at every single one, they know that you can't be an NP without a current RN license. Right. The computer is very black and white and we'll see you as ineligible. I actually worked with one person. She had wonderful experience and um, she couldn't understand why she wouldn't even getting a call back or an interview. And I said, well, send me your resume. And we took a look at it. And she had left off her RN license and she put that on there and she emailed me just a few days later and said, I'm getting all kinds of responses. So I think the system was just weeding her out. Right. Um, as not being qualified. Right. Right. As lacking those qualifications. Now, if you're new and you don't yet have a DEA or you don't yet haven't taken your boards yet, you can always put board eligible or the date when you have your testing or something like that or pending or something to to at least do a nod towards that it's coming. Um, but, um, you know, in this day and age, I, I just don't know that I think it's a great idea to be applying before you have all that anyway. You know, I mean, it's competition so stiff. And if you're applying and then you reapply for something after you get those and you get into the system too many times, that's a red flag to employers too. It starts to look like you don't know what you want. You know, you just have these multiple applications in the system, like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what'll stick. And that sometimes the system can tune you out if you get too many of those as well. So you wow. need to be selective. So when you're talking about a system, you're talking about, say, one large hospital system that has your application for many different right. positions. Yeah, we okay. call those ATSs, applicant tracking systems. And people use all kinds of different ones. Sometimes they try to adapt marketing ones to it, like Salesforce and stuff like that. But, but essentially, they kind of all do the same thing. Um, the other thing that I think it, you know, can be a mistake, especially when you're dealing with submitting it um, digitally, is um, too much formatting. Um, you know, recruiters really don't care if it's fancy formatting and indents and you know, all these tables and things. All it does is a lot of these applicant tracking systems, you submit it and it extracts certain information and plugs it into their format and it just goofs it all up. Mm -hmm. The best thing to do is just keep it simple. I mean, if you're in advertising or something, then you want some flash and bang with it, you know, when people look at it, but not in our profession. They just want the information. Um, so stay away from fancy formatting and then also make it a PDF um, because those are a lot less uh, likely to become corrupted. I mean, think about how every time you've opened a Word document and you just read it and you go to close it and it says, do you want to save changes? 
They're like, I didn't make any changes. <laughs> or at least you think you did. <laughs> yes, I don't think I did. Um, right. But you know what I mean? Things can, can happen like that. So I tell people, you know, do a PDF. People are much more comfortable opening PDFs on the other end as well. Um, so sometimes yeah. it's just little simple things that trip you up. Yeah. What are, what are some of the other big mistakes that you see? Um, in terms of app applying or yeah, the, to get a job. The, the interview process or the, you know, oh, uh, down the that's line. probably a whole nother. Yeah, because it can unravel at any point. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's failing to recognize that there's competition. And um, if you're a new or more recent graduate, you have to understand you are competing against seasoned applicants. And if the seasoned applicants also were nurses. So if you think your RN experience is going to tip the deck in your favor, <laughs> you know, we were all nurses before. This, this is not something that stands out, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, you have to, to get to the here and now. What are your current skills um, and so on? So I think that's probably the biggest thing is kind of underestimating the amount of competition that you're going to have and that you really need to bring your A game. And then the other right now is you've got to have patience. Maybe you have, it'd be more appropriate to indicate your start, start date is a while from now. Um, because unless it's one of those critical areas, nobody's hiring right away. So I, I would say those are probably the things to keep in mind. But like I said, this we can have a whole other podcast on how to derail how to interview. interview. <laughs> yeah. but, but in the meantime, why don't you give a couple of tips or a couple of warnings for interviewing? Um, if you're going to an interview, number one, let them do the talking. Um, one of the leading complaints when I was actively recruiting, because, you know, we would talk to the employer after we sent a candidate and get the feedback on their interview, which you probably as a candidate would never know. Um, and what they would talk about was that the, that the candidate took over the interview. Um, they called it hijacking. And they, they did all the talking. Um, let the employer do the talking. Let them, they want to talk about their organization and so on and let them do the talking and let them ask the questions until you're asked at the end, do you have any questions? And then be sure to have some um, because otherwise you look sort of disinterested. The other big thing that was an absolute, um, to use an old 60s term, turn off <laughs> to the employer was when a, a, a candidate who was interviewing started negotiating before, before they'd even been offered the job. Well, I see the job is, you know, Monday through Thursday, would you consider, you know, this, or would you consider longer days or, you know, like you don't do that. You know, it's not your job yet. So just hold your horses. The time to negotiate is when the offer's on the table because that is really puts off employers if you start kind of doing that prematurely. Since you mentioned negotiation, mm -hmm. the question always comes up about money. Yes. Any tips on that? Well, if you're dealing with a big organization that has scales laid out, you know, for X number of years and experience and so on, just know they're not really, they're not going to deviate from that. They have hundreds of employees that are plugged into that scale and you, they're not going to, you know, 
violate their own scale for you. Uh-huh. I mean, they're really sort of tied by those some, you know, through contracts and different things like that. But you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're probably not going to, you know, be open to that, which can negotiate for though, with some of the, the other things, maybe some increased um, time off. Um, or um, some CE reimbursement or some something like that, some administrative time, some of those other things that they could do for you. I mean, it, it's all just a big pie and it just kind of depends how you slice it up. So I think the most important thing for people going into negotiation is to decide what's really important to you. Yes. You, you know, where, where do you want your battle to be? It can't be in five different areas. You need to think about what's really, really important to you. Um, I worked with one NP. She um, actually was from Europe. And the thing that was most important to her is she, they were offering, I think it was like three weeks of vacation or something starting out, is that she could take it all as one chunk because she was not going to be able to go, feel like she could go visit family in Europe on a week. You know, right. she needed, you got to get acclimated and so on. And she wanted it off. That was what was most important to her. Yeah. You know, it's different for everybody. Um, but just know when you start getting into negotiation, one um, um, response or request for an accommodation or whatever is about the max. The more times you go back and forth, the less likely it's going to work. So, you know, when you come back with your your um, counter, you think of it as you, you're going to have one counter. Uh-huh. Um, and realize that this is some place you want to work for. You don't you don't want an adversarial relationship coming out of the gate with you know multiple counters and getting into this kind of thing. You're going to have a long term relationship with this particular entity. At least you hope so. Um, and, and you want to you know approach it from that standpoint. I mean, a successful negotiation, neither party gets everything they want. That is the key. Right. right. It, and, it, and it is. And, you know, one of the things that I usually tell people is when they go, b- before they even get to that point of negotiation, they should have already done their homework and figured mm-hmm. out where they're going to draw the line in the sand. Yes. When do you decide that it's, nope, this isn't going to work, I'm going to walk away. And then just stay with it. And not be desperate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, um, Again, you know, so much of this is so standardized now that it's difficult to really vary too far from what they are. So you should, in the very beginning, if it doesn't match or, you know, is not within two to five percent, maybe you need to move on and find something that does align better. Right, and not even apply for that particular Right, right, right. Because the idea you're going to change, you know, some big organization with thousands of employees is just not realistic. Um, You know, you should find something that's more in alignment with what you're doing. Now, that can be hard in a tight job market, obviously. Um, But, you know, maybe you need to scale back some some expectations. Um, And maybe some employers need to reevaluate, you know, especially if they've had jobs out there for, ages maybe they need to reevaluate what they're putting out there if they're not getting people who can stay who are willing to stay or whatever i mean there are there are some employers that are 
quite under market, but I would say most, you know, just like we have our groups that talk about this stuff, they have theirs. <laughs> and yes. HR meets and they look at data that's been gathered through their associations from every other clinic, hospital, whatever, you know, and then they, they try to align with it. Um, so we're not the only ones researching. Right. I, th- I think sometimes we forget that. Yes, that, I think so. That, you know, that they'll talk. And, and the other thing, too, as, as, um, as a small employer, you know, so not a big organization. Right. But I know um, in my practices, I have talked to other practices, yeah. you know, and many of them will say things like, well, you know, the only thing I can do is is um, confirm that this person worked here, verify mm-hmm. their employment. But you always find a way around that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and I have, I have, I've said, you know, oh, thank you for doing that. You, you know how it is out here in the community. We're a small county and there's not a lot of people that are around. And then pretty soon you get, well, you know, off the record, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been called off the record too. Right. I so, know you're not supposed to tell me this, but I'm going to ask you as a friend. <laughs> right. Or, or I know you can't really tell me this, um, and they'll put it out there anyway, waiting to see what kind of a response you might give. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, silence speaks volumes. Oh yes, yes. Exactly. So, so these these have been great tips for people who are looking for work, and certainly I want them to be able to reach out to you at your website. We'll talk about that toward the end, but I want to switch gears a little bit. You have been completely involved in Minnesota's nurse practice, nurse practitioner um, environment in terms of helping get full practice moving forward and keeping it moving forward um, and just being involved in that whole community. And I think um, one of the things is a lot of people don't know, one, how to get involved, um, and they don't know what it takes to be involved and to keep things running the way that they want. I mean, we were talking before um, the recording that just because you have full practice doesn't mean you can sit on your laurels. Oh, absolutely not. It, it you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And <laughs> <laughs> a really good way to put it. Yes. And you have to be alert. And one of the ways that we discovered, you know, prior to well, I should backtrack and tell you the name of our organization is called the Minnesota APRN coalition. And we are kind of a unique group in that when we formed um, to seek full practice authority, we formed with all four roles. Now, the midwives almost essentially had it anyway, but they wanted to be part of the process. And we were very happy to have them there um, because, again, they could lose what they had, too. Whenever you start tinkering with the Nurse Practice Act, you know, you can lose things. Um, things get added on um, to what to your legislation that, that could take you backwards. But anyway, so our organization encompasses nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, nurse anesthetists, and nurse midwives. 
Um, you know, the largest number in the state, of course, is nurse practitioners. Um, when you go look at the Board of Nursing Statistics, we are the largest group. But we wanted to um, work together, so we made sure that if one, if there was going to be advances, we'd all go together, and that no group would pay the price for an advance. And so prior to this group, our CRNAs in the state were always very politically active because they've always had a big threat um, sort of to their practice. And they had a very strong organization, um, but, and they maintained a lobbyist. But there was no group for the NPs, for instance, that had a lobbyist down at the Capitol. And so when we formed this, we, we actually went for full practice authority one time um, about two years prior to passing it. And um, we didn't have a lobbyist. We were kind of depending on another one to make our case for us, the nurses lobbyist. Um, but we, it didn't pass. We, we retreated with our tail between our legs, essentially. And then we came back and we decided, you know what, we need to make this a formal organization. We need to have people paying dues. And we have to um, we have to hire lobbyists, and they're not cheap. And so we worked really hard um, to bring the full practice authority together, and we we got a lot of folks joining, and so on. And then it passed, and membership just kind of you know fell off the edge of a cliff, of course, because people thought it was done. But we persisted. Um, we. We kept at it. We kept communicating. One of the strategies we did is we, to this day, we communicate with every advanced practice nurse in the state, whether they're a member or not. Our updates go out to everybody because we're hoping they'll see the value and join. And so we went for right after full practice authority. I think our membership was down to like less than 50 people. It's now over 500, which for Minnesota is actually really good. We're we're not big joiners. And so we've been able to have a lobbyist down at the Capitol now during session. um, Our legislature meets usually starts around late January and then they have to be done sometime in the spring. I forget they have a kind of a date where it has to end by. um, It's usually, I think, early May. So we have a lobbyist down there during the session and then we have one in her, the same one to be there in between because a lot of things go on in between sessions as well. A lot of um, connections and, you know, there's just a lot. So one of the things that we realized um, is that not, maybe we didn't have a bill going forward, but we had to monitor other bills that were going forward. Some were just very physician-centric language, and it was simple enough to, you know, go and meet with folks and, kind of explain to them, you know, this is part of our job. We have full practice 30 now. This is not outside of what we do every day. Um, And usually they were amenable to adding it. Um, And so there was that piece of it. Um, Again, sometimes um, there would be things that would sort of want to take something from us and we could get on that very quickly. When we very first started our full practice authority, we literally had to explain what a nurse practitioner did or whatever, they, you know, they, they just did not have a good understanding, the legislators I'm talking about. Now, it has moved to the point where they say, when a bill comes forward that, that has to do with health care, they say, what do the APRNs say? And they seek out our group. 
and Excellent. To get, yes, and that is power. So when you talk about getting involved, you know, I, I'm lucky because I have a lot of flexibility in time. I was president for four years. We have another stellar president who um, is president now. Um, but I, I was the, became president right after full practice authority existed. And I, I was lucky because it's, we're an all-volunteer group. We don't have an executive director. You know, we're all doing a lot of work. Um, but I was lucky that I had a very flexible schedule because of the kind of work that I do. And um, not everybody does. Not everybody has the time. But just by becoming a member, that, you know, you can sort of put your money to work for you, too. Because one of the things they ask is, how many members do you have? Right. You know, who, who, how, who are you representing? Um, we're getting close. I think we're around APRNs in the state are around nine to 10,000 now. So, I mean, that's a big number. Um, actual membership, like I said, is a little over 500. Um, but we can mobilize those people very quickly if we need to. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, that, that's one way, if you don't have the time to get involved and come to meetings and so on, is that you can just, you know, simply join and then be there to send an email or make a call or whatever. You know, if you want to be more involved, then you come uh-huh. to meetings and you get involved in a committee um, or, or do some of those other things and start learning a little bit more about us. Um, you know, you I, I'm not so sure that, I mean, people have heard it, but I don't know that... It, people have really internalized the message that numbers are power. Yes. And the more people that an organization can represent, the more power that you have. Because when you go to, um, whether you're going to the legislation in Washington, D.C. or in your state, those legislators are looking at, oh, these are my constituents. Yes. These are people I need to answer to. And so it, it is important. We've made great strides by putting out a message, you know, who's in so-and-so's district? Can you call them? Can you contact with them? And some of the districts are, you know, they're rural and, and they may know this person personally. Um, and yeah. that's been very helpful to us. Um, and that might be just their only involvement is that they're reaching out to that particular legislator. Um, and, you know, it's important to, to belong to organizations, definitely to your national organization. I mean, that, you know, one for NPs is, is really, you know, becoming very powerful and very visible. And it has grown so much. But then also recognize you need to find a state organization to belong to as well. And like I said, each state does it a little differently um, with their organizations. There may be a separate NP1 or something like that. But the place where you have the most influence is in your state. Um, because your representative, for instance, doesn't represent the entire state. You know, it's a smaller group of people and they're going to be much more responsive to them. Um, And you might think, well, that doesn't change, you know, at the federal level. Well, luckily we have people at AANP working on that. But just know the more states that are successful with full practice authority, the longer or the, the less time that the federal can be restrictive. You know what I mean? It's, it's, they're going to see, 
you know, almost all the states, as we hope soon, our full practice authority, things are going to have to be changed. They can't just keep putting it off. You know, it's a clear message. One of our, um, my colleagues likes to say until, you know, the federal rules are changed, we really don't have full practice authority. But as each state adopts it, it, it's going to have to happen. And some of it did with the pandemic. There were definitely some strides that were made. And in that case, you know, if you're in a state organization, you want to get, we, we were fortunate that we got out ahead of it and added it to our state so that when the, the federal changed, I think it was, what is it, diabetic shoes, I don't practice that particular type of healthcare. So I've kind of sometimes forget those, but the couple changes they made, we had already done in our state. So there was no lag time waiting for the next legislature to convene to add it. It was all ready to go um, once, you know, Medicare changed. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. You know, ours, our change in our state would have, you know, obviously only applied to maybe private insurance or something. But still, we, we actually were out ahead of the game. And that felt really good um, that there's not going to be a delay there. A delay in having that happen. And, you know, you're right. I mean, even um, when we look at the states with full practice, and and I'll just throw this out there, too, um, because I, I'm talking to a lot of NPs who say their states have full practice, and it's not quite full practice um, because there's still physician involvement. Um, and, and leaving aside the federal, you know, that's... yeah. I, yeah, that's just, that just is, you know, you can be in like when I was in Washington, you know, full practice. Oh, you're supposed to have a collaborator for Medicare? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm in a full practice state, mm-hmm. but that supersedes. Mm-hmm. But um, the more of us that have expanded practices that have the full practice or close to full practice, but preferably full practice, it does. It, it, it's like, oh, we're the only state that doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and states don't necessarily want to be left out either. Right, right. That was one of the, the things that we said, too, you know. Um, I mean, here, you know, we're Minnesota. We have the Mayo Clinic and so on. We've always prided ourselves as being ahead of the curve, <laughs> you know. Don't you want to be on that train now and not be the last to adopt it? You know, we're all people and those kind of arguments work on us. Yes, yes, they do. They do. Um, But you you have to have incredible grassroots too, which again, you know, if you're communicating as an organization with your, um, um, the folks in your state, you're, you know, that's going to happen. You're going to get that grassroots involvement. Um, I mean, there was one point when we were doing full practice authority that's, I forget now, it's been five years um, but something was, some part of it was in jeopardy and threatening to just pull the whole thing. And we put out a message and said, you need to call. We shut down the switchboard at the Capitol. We had to, within an hour, I had to put out another message saying, message received, stop calling. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that's how invested because we had kept updating people and letting them know, uh, you know, what was going on. And, and people were very invested in it. Um, yeah. You know, and then you involve your other organizations, your hospital associations, you know, all these other ones that really would like to see this happen as well. Yeah, most, I think most organizations, except for a few, which mm-hmm. we'll just, 
leave those <laughs> out. But um, most people just want to. I, I, at the bottom line is, and actually, no matter who the organization is, we all want to do what we think is best for the patients. Yes, yes. And what is best for healthcare. We just don't always agree what that how to get there and that was one of the strategies that we use too is that it can't just be good for us as practitioners we have to be hearing from our patients as well the legislators need to hear from them um, because this is really as you said that's really what it's about it's not just about us I mean that's part of it but um, you know there's a lot of people that really like to go to NPs and 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 wanted this and and so we used a lot of those personal stories as well yeah and i think that's probably one of the most important is just um, having the healthcare consumer get involved oh absolutely absolutely and there's a lot of good groups out there that represent you know consumers in all kinds of different conditions and you know um and to to get them on board um is really important and then like you said you you know for one thing you can lose you know you can lose your gains but the other thing too is just because you passed it doesn't mean it gets implemented an employer can do whatever they want Um, and we've been surveying satisfaction and culture in the workplace and so on for a few years and um, there are some areas where you can tell that you know they it just hasn't made the progress we'd hoped in five years. I mean, overall, it's been pretty good, but there's still a few holdouts. And we have to figure out, and perhaps we can use our recent survey to go to them and say, look, you know, this is making NPs unhappy um, the, when this sort of thing happens in a, in a workplace. Um, so, you know, um, make sure that, you know, think of some ways that, that you can, keep this from happening, you know, it's in your best interest in your patient's best interests. Um, um, because some of the areas where, where we noticed, at least I noticed this year in the survey was the involvement in, um, you know, sort of committees and leadership roles kind of things that's lagging a little bit where you mm-hmm. hope that there would be someone representing us on those particular um, committees. Yeah. Those are important. They're really important. Yeah, you don't let somebody else speak for you. <laughs> that just does not work. No, it never does work. No, does no. Uh-uh. Well, and it's time. I mean, we, you know, we don't need to be dependent on another profession to speak for us. We really don't. No, no. Well, time's passed. Time's yes. Passed. Yeah. So, Renee, this has been great, and I hope everybody's been listening. All, all of the NPs who contact me about getting a job. Renee's the person to talk to, not me. So how can people get a hold of you if they want more information, both about the job um, and also what's going on in Minnesota? Um, so about the, the, the job parts, I do have a website. It's npcareercoach.com. Um, under the resources tab, too, I've made some sort of guidelines for putting together resumes and cover letters and so on. And I only charge like $1.99 for them because it, I have to somehow defray the cost of the website a little bit. But, you know, I'm not getting rich off that. Um, so you can get those resources um, that can help you. Um, 
to put together your, your resume and your cover letter and then just some sort of frequently asked questions. Um, and then um, I have an active Facebook page, um, which is just NP Career Coach um, that has, uh, that's active. Um, if they're interested in what's going on um, in Minnesota from a legislative standpoint, our website for the Minnesota APRN Coalition is mnaprnc.org. And um, we have, you know, lots of announcements. We actually have a conference this year. Got, we got a little off track because of the whole pandemic thing. We usually hold it in April in person, um, but it's all pharmacology credit. Um, two, oh. two days we were doing, but, and we had to, we delayed it till September thinking surely this would be sorted out by then. Oh no. <laughs> but we went to a virtual conference, which means that, you know, if we start continue doing virtual, you could attend from anywhere. And we do um, get uh, um, the CEs approved by a, we apply for accreditation through AANP. Um, and so they're accepted, but you, I think we had about 14 credits of farm this year with two days. Um, so we'll be planning something for the spring, whether it'll be virtual or in person. We're going to kind of hold off on that decision till about December. Um, but we, we do have that. Um, we're going to be posting, I would say within the next week or so, the results of our workforce survey for each role. Um, we're going to split it up into four, four different reports. I'm compiling it right now. We'll post those to be able to download from our website um, at no cost. So if somebody wants to take a look at what's going on in this state um, pre-COVID, <laughs> they could, you know, certainly can take a look at our survey. Maybe it gives them some ideas to do surveys of their own. Um, if they need a custom sort with cross tabs or something, we certainly can do something like that too. Um, but um, we get a lot of exciting things going on with the coalition. And then there'll be, like I said, legislative updates um, as we, once we get past the election, that's always the, you know, you never know who's going to make up your state legislature um, in a month from now. Well, I mean, they take office after the new year, but you know what I mean? It can, things could change a lot. Right. And, and we have to kind of keep an eye on that as well. Um, but that's um, that organization. Sounds good. Sounds good. So I appreciate everything here. I'm going to have all the links for all the places that uh, Renee talked about in the show notes over at npbusiness.com. So I want to thank you once again. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yes, of course. Of <laughs> course. And, you know, and I'll just, I'll just throw this in. I, you know, in conferences prior you know, going back, I don't even know how many years I've listened to you talk, even though I wasn't interested myself in a job. But, um, but, you know, it's, it serves as a resource. So I would really highly recommend anybody who's having difficulty looking at their career, trying to decide about their career, go ahead and contact Renee. Well, and if your organization would like you know, someone to do a, a quick talk on um, resumes uh, and job searching, I am certainly happy to do that. In fact, I just kind of last year, I think it was I updated my talk to um, kind of reflect the the big trend of remember um, Marie Kondo, 
Um, yes. But, and, yes. I, I said, and I call it, does your resume spark joy? And then talk about keeping only those things in your resume that spark joy in the employer. And I kind That's of great. take her principles and put it into how you should create your resume. Right. Um, right. To declutter and organize. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, that would be great for almost any organization because we have nurse practitioners all over the country. Yes. You know, either looking at making changes in their career or just getting started. Yeah, yeah. So, and now yeah. we can do it virtually. There we go. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Barbara. Bye-bye now. Bye. So I hope you got a lot out of that interview. And I want to thank Renee for taking the time out to share her experience, her knowledge, her wisdom with all of us, not only about getting that job, but some of the ways that we can get involved in our own professional organizations. And I want to thank you for taking the time out today to spend your time with us. I'd like to invite you to head on over to npbusiness.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find our show notes, you'll find the resources and some of the links that Renee talked about. And make sure that you visit her website because she does have some resources there for you as well. And of course, while you're at npbusiness.com, go ahead and take a look around. There's all kinds of resources available to you on the business of healthcare. So again, thank you. This is Barbara C. Phillips, nurse practitioner and founder of Nurse Practitioner Business Owner. I appreciate you taking time out to listen to us today, to give us a rating, to share this with your colleagues. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the NP Business Matters podcast. Bye-bye now.